On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group talks to Simon Godfrey of Tribe of Names. Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and in this special episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friend, Ken Gregory, as we welcome new friend of the Palaver, Simon Godfrey of Tribe of Names. Wonderful. That's how you do that. <laughs> Welcome, Simon. <laughs> Good to be here. Hey, Simon. So, yeah, as as mentioned, we are very happy to welcome new friend of the Palaver, uh, Simon Godfrey. And, you know, our listeners may know Simon from any of his uh, myriad projects, including Shineback, Tiny Fish, Valdez, which has recently morphed into Tribe of Names. And of course, he's also uh, a former main contributor to the Tabletop Genesis podcast. So, Simon, very, uh, very nice to have you on board. Thank you for coming along. A genuine pleasure to be here with you guys. Outstanding. So, Hi. you know, we've got you on ostensibly to do a Peter Gabriel Lessons Learned um, you know, as we like to do when we do a, a segment on an artist, we like to have friends of the Palaver on to sort of talk about their experiences with the catalog. Obviously, you're in a, an, an excellent position to talk about that. But, you know, we can talk about really whatever, you know, comes up in the conversation as well. So we don't have to feel constrained in any way, shape or form. Well, this you're in true. trouble there because I'm uh, I'm a great one for actually making divergences off the main point. So. <laughs> Oh, Have Jesus. you ever listened to our podcast? <laughs> so in my in my defense, uh, we are not poaching you from Tabletop Genesis, <laughs> a, 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 as you ha, ha, had already found your amicable departure from uh, Tabletop Genesis. But um, uh, it, it's nice to, to capitalize on your experience there, because no, no doubt you, you delved deeply into the Gabriel catalog during that period. We did. We actually uh, uh, did a couple of, uh, of, uh, of forays, if you will, into the uh, into the Gabriel world. Not as many as I like, because if to be really honest with you, I'm actually probably more of a Gabriel fan than I am a Genesis fan, because I found Genesis through Peter Gabriel, interesting, um, rather than the other way around. So uh, it was a a very because I think the very first single I I think I ever bought actually no the very first single I ever bought was Video Killed the Radio Star by the Buggles. <laughs> Oh, wonderful. But the, but the second single I bought was No Self Control. Um, really? Wow. Uh, that was from uh, Peter Gabriel 3, the Melt album. Yes. Absolutely brilliant album. So if you're more of a Peter Gabriel fan and you came to Genesis through Peter Gabriel, how does that work on the home life, Simon? Because, you know, know. your wife is the she's on the other end of that spectrum, isn't she? Yeah, she's uh, I mean, one of the interesting things is, is that I think Stacey really knows more in a lot of ways about Genesis than I do. And and my role in uh, in the Genesis podcast in Tabletop Genesis was to be the layman to ask the questions that uh, regular, you know, that real Uber fans obviously knew, okay. but casual listeners or casual sort of like fans of the band probably didn't. Mm. And so I actually, I thought I knew a lot about uh, um, Genesis and, and, uh, and Peter Gabriel, but my God, uh, Mike Lord, the uh, the show's host and, um, yep. and, and Tom Roche, they really know their stuff. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, it, it, that's one of the the interesting things about running a progressive rock podcast, as we've learned to our cost occasionally. Um, you know, listeners of, of progressive rock are are very invested in the lore, and and if you don't have the lore, or if you mess up the lore, you know you're going to know about it, and that's oh, okay. Absolutely, you know? yeah. <laughs> that, uh, that's one of the things which I do love, though, about uh, a progressive rock as a genre is because. If you're into prog, you're a hardcore fan of music. That's yeah. just, you know, there's there's no casual progressive rock fan. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's 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 really funny and you know, I can remember when we started out, you know, we we didn't a understand that and we were just, you know, our our mission when we started out was maybe a little bit different than than what it is today. We were just we wanted to bullshit about music and <laughs> and as we figured out that you know lore matters it's like all right we got to up our game and you know i think over the, the years we've we've managed to do that so it's 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 good it is good fun though and and it does you know sometimes it's 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 almost worth it to screw something up just to get the listener engagement level you know <laughs> <laughs> you're living dangerously there sir <laughs> well you know it, well let's put it this way when when we screw something up i try not to abuse myself too badly because I'm like, well, at least something came out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so wow. it's it's funny to hear you describe yourself as as the layman, but I guess you're describing yourself as a layman in terms of Genesis, since you obviously are the you know the pro musician of the group. Yeah, I mean, I, I do. There, there are some nerdy aspects of of you know. I can tell you what drum kit at any time during Genesis career that Phil Collins was 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 playing and the make and all that kind that kind of, nice. sort of stuff. All of that. I love, I love all of that stuff, and um, uh, and uh, but we never really touched on it because that really is getting to the point where only musicians really care about that crap. If you, if you, you know, so uh, um, I tended to dial down that element of it, you know, <laughs> unless I was asked some kind of sort of like question about which studio the band were recording in at what point, you know? Right. Yeah. Which is, you know, and, and I'm fascinated by all all of that stuff. I, I, you know, I've been known to go down, you know, studio rabbit holes and, and everything else. <laughs> well, well, let um, me back you up here. Friend, friend yeah. of the Palaver, Dave Kersner, saw someone post a Genesis video. And the first thing he commented was, Apicab didn't have drum heads on the bottom. They were single heads. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> He's not wrong. <laughs> Yes, indeed. <laughs> That's phenomenal. I want to jump in and sow the seeds for this episode because obviously you were born in the UK. I, I, I'm a bit fascinated with, with Stephen Wilson now, as many proggers are, thanks to Joe's influence. And <laughs> and just uh, as, as you mentioned, you know, whether you're buying Video Killed the Radio Star or a Peter Gabriel single, there seemed to be this indelible... Uh, strain of of new wave and 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 bands like XDC that permeated the young prog heads that we didn't experience necessarily here in the states. So I'm yeah. wondering what was the in environment that that got you to that point of video killed the radio star and Peter Gabriel. Well, it's it's interesting because the one real difference between the U.S. and the U.K. was the U.S. music, uh, the U.K. music press. Um, there seemed to be a sort of a year zero around about the time of punk and the old wave of music journalists were pushed aside 
um, for these new evangelical uh, journalists that started writing for the New Musical Express and Sounds uh, and various other um, uh, papers and, and weekly and bi-weekly magazines that were available in the UK. And they effectively set what the standard for what was cool and what was not. And uh, as a result, it wasn't cool to be a Genesis fan. It just was not cool. It was, it was incredibly, uh, unhip to, uh, to like this kind of stuff. But you could, you could kind of sneak Peter Gabriel under the, under that sort of like bar, bar, bar yes. if you will. Um, because he really did embrace all that was, was new and was changing in the world at the time, you know, and, uh, if you, uh, take example, like, uh, Peter Gabriel three melt, um, one of the reasons why I'm always drawn to that album was the sheer breadth of talent that he brought in to record that, um, that album. For example, you've got people like Paul Weller of the jam is playing on no self control. You've got Kate Bush, who's, um, who's all, so, sorry, not, uh, no self control, uh, not one of us. Uh, and then you've got Kate mm. Bush singing on no self control and, uh, games without frontiers. Um, and then you've got members of XTC. I think, uh, Dave Gregory is, uh, playing guitar on that album as well. Oh, I believe and, yes. uh, yep. and so as a result, that album's a great springboard into a lot of new wave music. And, uh, it was the, you know, Peter Gabriel was the one member of Genesis you could speak in polite conversation and not get shouted down. <laughs> so, uh, so, ahead, so when, uh, when someone like Stephen Wilson in his album years podcast, talks about that that area he, he wasn't alone in a vacuum there, there, there were probably thousands or, or hundreds of thousands of, of youth who were plugged into that vibe yeah absolutely he was um i i remember i've only ever um seen stephen uh wilson in the flesh once and that was i went down to see a band called 12th night play at a local pub and this is when you know this is post stephen wilson in porcupine tree just starting out i think it might be grace for drowning uh, around about mm. that time that he released it and there he is in the pub just like everybody else watching 12th night play ah, ah. because he's a fan nice <laughs> that's great and and we i think you know when we covered um melt and uh, you know i cannot even remember at this point if if it was even security but we we did sort of notice this this new wave crossover into peter gabriel and the one thing about gabriel and i don't know if it's if he was unshackled you know being out of genesis but but peter gabriel throughout his career just seemed completely fearless to do whatever peter gabriel wanted to do and and he was not fettered in any way shape or form i think that's the secret of a great artist is is a certain amount of self-belief and bravery yeah you know just i mean a lot of you know just a lot of the approaches he took um there was a great quote that i read for the us album you know how he, he basically said you know and i'm going to paraphrase here but he basically said it sounds you know weird because that's what i was into at the time it just everyone thinks it sounds weird okay cool you know i mean you have to sort of give him props for that I, I, this is one of the things I love about Peter Gabriel is that if you if you if you were to sort of like sit down and chat with Peter Gabriel, he's like the most self confident but 
humble person you could possibly sort of like hope to meet. And if you ever see him in an interview, he's all, well, I did this and then... <laughs> And and the thing is that you just as just at the moment where you think to yourself this guy is all over the place, he'll then say, and then I thought, wouldn't it be great if there was a sea of blood that we could all fall in? And you're going, who is this guy? <laughs> so so maybe take us back. So I mean, when you bought that single. I mean, were you aware of of Peter's first two albums at that point, or, or not was that, at all? That your dump, your jumping in point. That really was my jumping in point. The first thing that I ever heard um, from Peter Gabriel was the track "Games Without Frontiers," okay, uh, and the accompanying video. Because back in the eighties, certainly in the UK, there were four channels on the television, and that was all you got. And they played one of his videos on top of the pops. And it struck a chord with me. It was weird. He had this maniacal look in his eye. And I just remember thinking to myself, I must buy a single of his and then completely forgot about it huh. uh, because I'm a, you know, I was a teenager back then and, and I had the attention span of a goldfish. <laughs> As you um, do. Yes, exactly. But the, uh, when it came around to the, to the next track, the, the no self control, I was really taken by the sound of, the drums and more specifically mm -hmm. the background vocals which sounded like distorted like they were sort of at the other end of a cathedral or something and it was a really unusual sound and um that really was what prompted me i had the choice between buying lilac wine by elkie brooks wow uh, or No Self-Control by Peter Gabriel. <laughs> and I, I ummed and ahed in the shop for a long, long time because I loved both of them. In fact, actually, I went out and bought the Elkie Brooks one a few weeks later. Ah. But I pro I prompt I, you know I plumped for the uh, for the Peter Gabriel one just for the simple reason that there was something about that Games Without Frontiers video which just drew me in. He was a magnetic personality. Yeah, he certainly is and was. So at that point, and I don't even know, I don't, I don't know if you even remember, I certainly wouldn't, what the B-side to that was and and how, like, did that lead you then to the album? And, I mean, were you hooked at that point? Or I can, yeah, I can tell you what the B-side was, and it was Lead a Normal Life. Oh, um, wow. That's uh, which was a... the, uh, which is, I think it's like some way on the second side of the, of the mm -hmm. album. And uh, I, I th th there's only one one interesting fact that I know about Lead a Normal Life, which is they resurrected that song. Because I don't know if you know, it's literally just marimbas or xylophones mm -hmm. being played in the background. And he talks about, like, you know, this character, he's being this character in a, in a mental s asylum, being sort of like told to lead a normal life. And uh, they resurrected it on the, I think it was like the So Tour or the uh, the us tour one of the two because one of the tour dates landed them in in a town called normal i think it's it's ah, either in really yes in, <laughs> um i think it's it's a it's a midwestern sort of like city or something or town and so they resurrected it for that one night so they played lead a normal life because they were in the town called normal that's amazing i love that so and and I mean, did you did you then buy the album and were you just taken away? Or? Yeah, I did. It was one of those albums where um, even now I could probably 
sing the entire album off off you know just off the top of my head oh wonderful simple reason that that you know i think that i've still got the original uh album it was the very first album i ever bought with my own money Mm. and as you probably know the two of you when you're young and uh and you know back in the days when when vinyl and albums meant something when you buy uh, an album it's like it's the equivalent of buying a car yeah it's it's a big purchase it was a financial it's a significant you know investment in uh and so you want to get the right one and um i just i'm glad i did because i got lucky on that first time out really yeah that's i mean that's that's an excellent one i've told the story on the podcast of the i still have the very first cd i ever bought even though i didn't have a cd player and it was i i had picked very specific like i I literally sat and thought for like a week which what's going to be my first cd and i decided it had to be wish you were here and so i i still have choice yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it's absolutely wonderful And, and and it's funny you talk about you know, at that age, the 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 value of albums it 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 brought me back to just before I met the guys here on, on the uh, on the palaver. Um, I guess it was probably in seventh grade, so whatever age that would make me, I I actually had like a a real birthday party, and I I asked all my friends to buy me albums, and I'll I'll never forget some of the like I got um I got the clash is london calling on that one i got uh tubes rarity and smash hits um those are the two that i remember i still Man, have i love the tubes oh do you really that's yeah. awesome yeah big fan of the tubes oh because because i i dug through you know the reading and and and, and figured out that peter and the tubes shared a bill together and we, we did we, they really yes 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 uh was a a, a festival I, I could dig it out again but um there, there, there is some kind of prescient weirdness in both bands that that just kind of yes. permeates. <laughs> and yeah, Feeway Bill, he's on another planet, that man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very quickly, the Palaver Research Department found normal north of Bloomington, Illinois. Ah, Illinois. there we are. Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, thank you so much for that. Tradition I, I, uh... on the Palaver is to actually throw in the the details on the fly. We don't have Paul with us tonight, but he's he's a good ally for that. <laughs> <laughs> so so when you when you you invested in Melt and then presumably wait a couple of years and four or security comes out. Apparently, it was only called security in the U.S. Um, That's which right. I did yeah. Not know. The first four albums were just called Peter Gabriel in the UK. And it was it was so funny because, you know, as I've been listening to, you know, progressive rock podcasts and, and reading more while doing this, you know, every and, and, and even just looking at the wikis, it always refers to that fourth album as Peter Gabriel four. And I'm like, I know damn well that it was called security. <laughs> and and so when I finally figured out that it was called security in the US, because like I even I pulled out my vinyl and I'm like, See, it's right there on the label. But that was, you know, I guess us Americans need to be spoon fed shit. So <laughs> I, I know I know that for Peter Gabriel four, um, he landed a deal through uh, uh, Geffen and mm-hmm. it was Geffen that pushed to have that album named. Uh, and uh, on a slight aside, um, there's a, a very interesting one in the fact that um, the Electric Light Orchestra 
um, released there. I think it was the very first album. It was either the very first album or the very second album. And uh, it was just called the Electric Light Orchestra. And uh, in um, in America, when it was picked up in America, the guy that headed up the American subsidiary that was going to release it asked his secretary to call the UK and find out what the name of the album was. <laughs> And she phoned up and couldn't get anybody. So she write, wrote that, wrote down on a little uh, note, no answer. And that's what it came out in the US as. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. That's so funny. I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm a, a somewhat cat. Well, I'm a somewhat more than casual ELO fan, but I, I've never even heard such a story. That's, that's fascinating. It oh, the joys of. Yeah, I was going to say it was mentioned in um, uh, Bev Bevan's autobiography. That's the only reason why oh, okay. I know about it. Cool. So, so when when Peter Gabriel Four comes out, were you aware that it was coming out? Were you anticipating it coming out? Did you rush to the store? Did you buy the single first? Well, we had a, um, a an arts program, a music and arts program in the UK called the South Bank Show. And what happened is that um, to as part of the promotion for the launch of the album, they did an hour-long documentary um, on Peter Gabriel recording Peter Gabriel Four or Security. Wonderful. And so it was. It was. It, it was available on the same week or like the same month that the album was released, and that was what. Uh, alerted me to the fact that there was a new Peter Gabriel album out. Um, I don't really, never had really had my ear that close to the ground when it comes to um, releases. And, and back then, Peter Gabriel still wasn't a mainstream artist. He was starting to get there. Right. But he had spent quite a few years out in the sort of like um, the musical wilderness, so to speak. And, and one of the things that I always think about with Peter Gabriel Four is that um, my brother, Jem Godfrey, who's in a band called Frost, mm, yes. that was his album. Oh, my album oh, okay. was like, was Peter Gabriel Three, and Jem just took to Peter Gabriel Four like, like a duck to water. That was the one that, that was the Peter Gabriel album that clicked for him. Okay. And so as a result, when I can't ever listen to that, that album without thinking about my brother and about how he, I mean, he loved things like Wallflower and, um, the rhythm of the heat and, and San Jacinto on, on that. Yeah. And, uh, well, you and just all, named the three best. So yeah. you're, oh, good. yeah. Well, there we are. <laughs> 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 yeah. It, it, and, and Paul and I have, have a somewhat similar experience with that. I, I always gravitated to, to melt. He, Actually, he didn't gravitate actually to security. He's a plays live guy. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. But but like I, it took me a long time to get into security. And and really, I mean, when I did, it was it was on the strength of those first two, the rhythm of the heat and San Jacinto. And, and after that, it kind of became a blur. But eventually I came, you know, I got. I got into the album deep enough that Wallflower kind of popped out at me and, and stuff. But, you know, it, I, I still. I, I think those opening two tracks are exceptionally powerful. Yes, they are. Um, yeah. It also, that album features the track of his I like the least out of his entire catalogue, which is The Family in the Fishing Net. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, agreed. It's, uh, I, I, I find that to be an interminable song. I mean, there are people out there that love it, 
Uh, and yes. it's a, it's got a good lyric, but oh, memories crash on tireless. Why? Oh God, kill me now! That that stuff I just find uh, it doesn't really do it for me, to be honest with you. Well, I mean, I guess he can't have you know hits all the time, but yeah, no. it's, it's 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 interesting. I, you know, when we went uh, when we started, yeah, I don't think any of us were overly familiar with his first solo record and you know it's it's a mixed bag there as well that's right uh bob ezrin i think produced that album yes um, yeah. and yeah. and you can hear it's produced by bob ezrin <laughs> like the production values are through the roof on that album um uh but it's it's an interesting album funnily enough actually um uh t- uh Tom Roche and Mike Lord uh, recently reviewed um, that album, uh, Peter Gabriel won, on the latest episode of, of uh, Tabletop Genesis. So it's well worth, unfortunately, they're having to do it like we are at a distance, so to right. speak, because of the lockdown. Thank you, but, COVID. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. But it's, a, it's an, I actually learned a, a, a crap load from, uh, from that podcast just to sort of like, you know, about how that album was put together and about how. He had been. He had decided at some point that he was going to go off and do other things. Yeah. And then his record company pretty much grabbed him by the scruff of the neck, saying, "You're doing an album." <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Guess I'll do that. <laughs> Little did they know what they were getting into. Yes. Little did they know. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be honest with you. I. I uh, it's it's a very eclectic album. Uh, it's all like, you Excellent know. I, obviously. Peter Gabriel was experimenting, like as as we've often, you know, as you have said uh, before, and as I've often thought about in the past, he's a very brave artist and wanted to try new things. Um, and uh, there are some very esoteric things, you know. You got Moribund the Burgermeister, which sounds, in my opinion, like like it could have been off the lamb. Yes. <laughs> Followed by. A barbershop quartet, I think it was <laughs> something along the lines. It was the second or third track, uh, and so yeah, that that uh, that album is a little bit all over the place, but a lot of fun. It, it, and and I agree. I think it it is fun. It's 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 a little uneven, but I mean, you you can often see that when you have, you know, a single person sort of removed from a band environment. And I, I likened it to when you repot a plant, you know, yes. you, you take it, its roots out and you put it in a new pot and it, it kind of is shocked a little bit. And then eventually it, it grows into a bigger and more wonderful plant. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that you can see the creative trajectory from Peter Gabriel one through the Peter Gabriel two, which I think I think is the stronger of the two oh, yeah. uh, albums, certainly in terms of as a cohesive unit. Uh, and but I think he found his sound by Peter Gabriel's three. I think that was the moment when, uh, like you know, the, the tracks like Biko and um, mm-hmm. Not One of Us, and I mean, it's the, uh, sorry to go back to Peter Gabriel. No, oh, no, of course. We- Family Snapshot, which I think is probably oh. one of the most powerful tracks I think I've ever heard committed to vinyl, really. It, it's it's so brilliantly composed, um, you know, just in, in terms of, of the lyric and, and the music, um, translating the, the emotions, the what I like is the, the sort of change of narrative perspective. 
and how the music flows with it. I mean, it's just, there's so much about Family Snapshot that, you know, it's it's one of those songs, it, at least when I first heard it, it sort of immediately grabs you. There's enough on the surface that you're like, wow, this is great. But the more time you spend with it, yeah. the greater it becomes. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it, it is an astonishing uh, thing. Uh, my my wife Stacy went to see the um, uh, one of the tours where he he opened up with Family Snapshot. Oh, good and lord! All of the house lights were up for the almost the entirety of the song until it got to the bit where it built up and built up, and he goes, "Well, I'm alive." They're coming around the corner with the bikers in front. All the lights went out. All the stage lights went on. Mm. Oh. Everybody in the stadium lost their shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I'd need yeah. new pants at that point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and that's, you know, that's another part that we haven't even, you know, we haven't even talked about really on, on Peter is able when he, when he does tours to create these striking images as well. And, and without a lot of stuff, you know, like I, I want to say, it was probably on the on the growing up tour where he used a little inflatable ball thingy, which was kind of gimmicky. And I think they had a bike at, yeah. at some point. Yeah, yeah. But but I mean, it's not like he has these huge, massive stage sets or anything. But it at the same time, he's able to to use the you know the the lighting and, and such to really dramatic effect, as I recall. I've, I I think I've only seen Peter actually with my own eyes twice, maybe. Um, but it's... I've actually I've actually only seen him once, and that was on the Amnesty International tour. Oh wow! Uh, where it came through, and and I saw him then. But um, I uh, my brother went to see him uh, on the So tour, and for some strange reason, I have the program, the tour program for that. Do you? So sorry oh, about that, Jim, if you're listening. I, I stole it from you. Um, <laughs> but you're right. I think what he does is he finds a central concept which he can hang the rest of the show off. And like, for example, the growing up uh, tour was the um, was like in the round um, and uh, sort of like just basically central right, yeah. in the middle of the audience. And uh, with... Um, uh, I think was the secret world tour. There were the two stages, so he could they they could move between stages to sort of like suit the songs better, and so I think he always comes up with a very strong kind of theme which he can hang the whole of the uh, of the live experience off for every tour that he's done. Indeed, sure. I only saw the US tour. Was that Secret Worlds? Yes, I, I think it was. It was. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes, very impressive. And he's also one of these guys that w the, he just he gets the best live band in the world, you uh, know. It's just like right. whoever, if you want, you know, it's it's a little bit like um, Alice Cooper or Zappa, like like if you have if your ex Peter Gabriel band like that on your CV, that's like a a passport to be able to right. play in any band <laughs> in the entire world. Sure, what would Stickman be without? Tony. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, I was going to say, you know, that's that's another thing that that we found going through the Peter Gabriel catalog because coming in when when we did because we got pretty much on board at so discovered the back catalog and, and moved forward. Shortly after that is when APWH came out, and so you know the the Tony Levin mystique was pretty much created by the time we got on board. But listening to the catalog oh, and sure. sort of he had to earn you know. It you know seeing tony 
be introduced and develop and finally reach that point. And I think we joked about it on one of the episodes where it's almost like, you know, Peter just says, Tony, just do what you do. And I'm going to stand back here. It's just brilliant. I love it so much. I'm a huge fan of Tony Levin. He's the real... I don't know what we call it, sort of like an icon next to an icon. He doesn't get drowned right. out by Peter Gabriel. He's like his own man. I've seen him actually as part of the Levin brothers uh, in mm. a tiny little club. Mm. Um, and uh, and he is he's just as magnetic on a small stage oh, sure. with his band uh, as he is sort of like playing everywhere else. And, just, and he still uh, photographed the audience. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and I suppose the best way to describe it, and it's a much overused phrase, but a consummate musician mm-hmm. is probably the best way to describe him. Absolutely. I saw, when, shortly after I moved to Texas, I saw Tony Levin on tour with Seal, which is... Wow. Odd, right? <laughs> but and and I want to say the show opened up with maybe Killer. It was it was a song on which Tony just you know played the 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 bass on, yeah, on the yeah. keyboard because that's what was done in the studio. And you know, I mean, you've got Tony Levin and he's he's rocking it out doing just that, you know. And and Tony Levin could do eighty five different things, but <laughs> you know, he he does what needs to be done and he does it wonderfully. Yeah, I, I and also the other thing is that I also think that that uh, the Peter Gabriel band features one of the most underrated guitarists in music in, in the form of David Rhodes. Yeah, oh, really? that man is such a huge influence on uh, so many guitarists. You 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 know you find someone who likes Peter Gabriel, who's a musician, they'll have nothing but nice things to say about about uh, David Rhodes, basically, and how he plays. That man has, I mean, he's got chops. And that's one of the things which I always think is marks you out as a very, very good musician, which is, yeah, you can play all of this stuff, but does it serve the song? And if right. it doesn't, Indeed. they throw it out. They go, okay. And I, I you know, he played with uh, Kate Bush on her, her sort of like 10 night stay at the Hammersmith Apollo. And so, and he basically, but I think he became like the de facto musical director for the, uh, for the, those Kate Bush shows. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I know that he often describes himself as, uh, when it comes to touring with Peter Gabriel as the mother of the band. He's the <laughs> mum. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, to, to actually give him credit, wasn't he part of the, the, the triad that created So? Yeah, I, I mean, mm-hmm. he was there, definitely sort of like as part of that team, him and, and Daniel Lenoir exactly. and, uh, yeah. um, and and Gabriel. I think, I don't know whether or not uh, Tony was that involved in it. I know that um, from what I hear, um, he did, they did, they did Sledgehammer uh, as a, as an afterthought. Yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> Peter Gabriel sort of like said, and I'm, I'm quoting from the, the making of so DVD here, um, that, that he said, we've got this track that we're thinking about putting on the next album. Would you mind putting some bass down on it? <laughs> and that was the, that was Sledgehammer. Wow. Indeed. Um, uh, One member that I find fascinating, who I never knew prior to this research, uh, or maybe just the last two years in general, he's been more present on the internet, but Larry Fast just brought an iconic sound to those early albums that, that very few people could have achieved, and yet 
when it came time for sell, Peter's like, nah, I bought some keyboards and I'm just kind of jamming. And I, I think I got this keyboard thing all worked out on my own and I'm going to do my own thing over here. And it was funny. Larry paved the way for all of this, but he didn't get to play on so. Yeah, it's a shame because if there's one word that you can associate with Larry Fast and, and his keyboard playing, it's gravitas. Mm. He has this immense weight and i always felt especially with those uh the albums which he played on there was a lot of weight and depth to to uh to to those albums and i think that larry was part of that sound that weight and that uh you know that sort of abyssal kind of boom kind of sound he uh, he gave it that epic kind of feel in my opinion i agree with you it's a it's a shame that he never got to see it but hey it's peter gabriel's ship he can do whatever he damn well (laughs) plays absolutely and he does so we've kind of talked around it um you know the 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 latter part of the catalog you know so you know just blew everything out of the water in some ways it was you know it may have been a departure but i think and you pointed out correctly it's still on the trend line all things considered but there was something there was something about that that just you know obviously resonated and then you know the the few albums after that um us and and up which is you know much darker as a whole but it's the one that i like more because <laughs> i'm just that twisted <laughs> it's a, it is a good album i mean i think uh you can just tell um that peter gabriel had money after after so and uh <laughs> You only have to ask uh, Dire Straits what happens when you become really, really successful and everybody gets money. It all becomes incredibly hard. How do you yeah. follow up that kind of uh, that hit? How do you follow up that sort of um, that groundbreaking cultural landmark that that is something that came from somewhere that you really can't put your finger on? And uh, and I think that that's one of the things which I think what peter gabriel did in in the latter half of his career was collaborate i think that was the moment where he thought well i can jam with people anyone i like now and they'll take my call (laughs) and i think that um i think that the the latter period and stuff especially when you get to uh, albums like ovo Mm -hmm. which uh, um is a personal favorite of my wife stacy and uh that's a, an in, a very intriguing album because it's got a lot of uh of, of change of pace it's sort of like it's almost like the two sides of peter gabriel i always think you get is you get the soundtrack peter gabriel and you get the pop star peter gabriel right and i think ovo was like a, a melding of the soundtrack peter gabriel and the pop star peter gabriel in one album how do you oh. feel about the the soundtrack albums and, and, um, and you know when when I say that I'm I'm speaking you know most well mostly about about Birdie and Passion but the yeah. others as well because there's four altogether right yeah I I don't know I don't know the other two I know Birdie and Passion very well I don't know any of the others to be really honest with you um, I know that what was the uh, um, something linked fence one of the uh, the one that he's on on that one um, and I can't remember what it is but one of the things which I find is very interesting about uh, Peter Gabriel, and this is something which I think he has a little bit in common with Neil Peart as well as a composer, is the fact that I remember once hearing Neil Peart saying, I wanted to redesign my 
drum solo for the new tour. And he was talking about certain elements that he wanted to keep. And he said, yeah, I'm not fully done with that element. I still haven't explored it to my own satisfaction, so I'll keep it in my drum solo. And I think that one of the things that happens with the soundtracks for Peter Gabriel is it gives Peter Gabriel an opportunity to revisit some of his previous material and look at it again in a different light. Mm. Mm. Like it. Oh, oh, okay. Justification for the recycling of material in Birdie, I believe. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things which I actually really like Birdie. I think it's probably my favorite soundtrack of his, um, with, with, with Passion being a, a close second. But there's something very violent about the Birdie soundtrack, um, which um, really isn't captured as, as much on Peter Gabriel 3 or on Security or Peter Gabriel 4. There is an inherent violence to that uh, album, which I find I couldn't put it down. There was just something very threatening about it. It was like, it felt like to me the moments before a fight was about to break out. <laughs> and uh, it always had that feeling for me. And, uh, and I really liked that album as a result for that simple sense of, of menace that sits, mm, you know, at the menace. base of it all. I love it. Uh, maybe that's a, a good segue. There, there is a sense of menace in Peter Gabriel, but but there is also the undying innuendo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he like he likes his uh, his uh, his innuendos in a big way, doesn't he? <laughs> I think he has a he has a very playful relationship with sex. Yes, yes, he does, and power. Uh, oh, yeah. And I think I think really because you know sex and power they go hand in hand in a lot of ways and um, there's something about uh, steam is a great example of that if you ever see the um, absolutely uh, the, the the video for steam as well uh, there's a lot of sort of like playful uh, playfulness about that and um, and what was the uh, the track that he did with um, I can't remember what it's called now it was from us i think it was it was the something something show i can't remember what it is um oh you're talking about the barry williams show that's it up? the barry williams show there's a lot of uh of of um of sex and power in that song as well yeah very much so mm -hmm. and I, I yes you're you're absolutely right he <laughs> he is winking an awful lot of that uh, while he's singing into the microphone for those kind of things is it generational i mean as a songwriter yourself can you currently get away with that level of bravado and innuendo and sexism? I, that's, you know, that's a very interesting question. I think I always remember uh, um, my, my lyricist uh, co-writer, uh, Rob Ramsey, was talking about this uh, with someone about, uh, about what's appropriate and what's inappropriate um, in a song or a book. And... Uh, his uh, take on it was, uh, if it's a story, you can say what you like. If you're passing comment on real real events, then it, it might nest could conceivably be a little bit more problematic. And of course, that's the thing about art is it's nearly always a reflection of what's going on in real life. But with the added benefit of having that safety valve of artistic, mm -hmm. um, uh, what would you call it, interpretation. And yeah, Peter is one to say what he needs to say through other characters when he needs that device. Yeah. 
I, I think, I, you know, Peter Gabriel has been writing character stories for his entire musical career, from sort of Harold the Barrel um, uh, all the way through to uh, to uh, you know sort oh, of like to, yeah. to yeah Rail and Mozo and yeah. and the, the, you know and the Barry Williams show as well. And uh, I think it's it's you know he very rarely brings himself in as the first person as the protagonist, if you know what I mean. I think he's always doing that third person over the shoulder kind of feel with his, you know, that certainly seems to be his more comfortable area of creativity. And his protagonists are flawed. Yes, they are. And I, you know, that's a question I was going to ask uh, of you guys. Do you think that's on purpose or do you just think that's because Peter Gabriel is being Peter Gabriel? <laughs> Joe, that's I, your department. Yeah, I, I, I would have to, I'd have to think. Well, I honestly, I think the answer is both. I think it's very much on purpose because flawed protagonists are more interesting. Mm -hmm. And and you know, Peter Gabriel, you know, he he's he's got a couple different gears. So either he's nudge nudge wink winking you isn't that clever um, about the sex stuff, or he wants to really make you think about something, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and that really seems to get his juices going. And, and I don't, I mean, I don't know anything about Peter Gabriel personally, so I don't know if Peter just, you know, sits around and has these thoughts on his own and wants to share that with the world, or if he just is one of those, you know, provocateurs who likes to just, you know, get people's gears going because he can, but, I mean, the, the fact that it comes up so often, and quite frankly, the fact that I think he is so adept at, at you know, creating those thoughts, at least it does with me. I mean, I, I, you know, as we were going through the catalog and I was spending, you know, more time with these lyrics and it just, you, you get into it and you're like, oh, what about this? And oh, my goodness, I hadn't thought about that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I think it's interesting that uh, for every sort of sledgehammer, uh, there is a um, shake in the tree. You know, mm -hmm. I, th I think you know. I, I won't say that the, the the balance is 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 fully equal. I think uh, he is his more overtly sexual yeah. um, songs are from a coming from a place of playfulness mm -hmm. rather than misogyny. I think that. Um, it's a he, he. I mean, Mercy Street is is possibly another one of these ones where where uh, when he talks. I mean, it is one of those tracks which I completely went over my head when So was released uh, the, and the works of Anne Sexton. But uh, in oh, later for, years, yeah, for thirty years I didn't think about it. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you know, to be really honest with you, I think that's one of the things that sets peter gabriel apart from from people like myself is, is that he does genuinely think very deeply about uh about his art and about how it's put together and uh and i think that um when you when you listen to mercy street um it's it makes a very very different impression upon me now than it did yeah. as you know that dickhead 20 year old that i was back in the 80s really well, uh, peter we fared... all love our dickhead 20 year old selves <laughs> <laughs> peter fared very well as an activist maybe not initially as we know he, he lost money but you know if we look back at bob geldof we see maybe the astroturf side 
of fundraising mm. and philanthropy, but Peter maintained his credibility through the years with, with all of his projects and his, his involvement. And I, I, I'm more of a bleeding heart like, like Peter. And I, I believe, you know, Steve Hogarth is another prog bleeding heart. And I, I like to think that these th things can be done respectably and, 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 and effectively with, <laughs> with being at least judgmental and, you know, beneficial to society. There's a, I don't know whether or not you know uh, about this, and I'm going to take this slightly off uh, base here a little bit, but I, there is a point I'm going to try and make to, to your to what you've just mentioned, which is, I don't know whether or not you know this, but um, Disney Plus have just put the original Muppet show back on to really? uh, TV. Yes. So you can see the ones from, from 1977 all the way through to the mid-80s. And uh, But one of the things that they've done is that they, rather than, because there was a lot of shall we say, dubious cultural um, mm -hmm. misappropriation and references. Sure. And they've done what I think is the smart thing. Statler which is, Yeah, yeah. And uh, rather than sort of like edit it out, they have put a little warning at the start mm. saying, look, this has culturally inappropriate, uh, you know, it was, it's an archaic, it was a, a different time. But it leaves the choice up to you to, to watch it, or at least you're like you're forewarned, and you and my God, when you when it when the when the uh, scene drops, and you go, yee, okay, yeah, that was not good, but good, you know, more power to Disney because they let you make the decision, and I think that that's one of the things that Gabriel does. He let you know, and a good artist should should leave. A lot of the interpretation, a lot of the the, the way that that you react is, of course, down to you. And I think that he's been very clever um, in building a lot of depth into the lyric, and certainly a, a no certain amount of ambiguity as well to allow mm -hmm. some interpretation from the listener. Um, so, speaking to your point, I think that there's. Um, there's another side of Peter Gabriel which um, we, I don't think we'll ever see because that's private to him. Indeed. And so as, as a result, I think that whenever we listen to uh, a Peter Gabriel track, we're only hearing part of it. I think, you know, and I do it myself. That I, I, you know, I, there are songs which I write which are for me. You know, <laughs> I'm not telling anybody what that song means. And, and what, you know, if you want to make up an, a, you know, a, um, a, an interpretation, by all means, go ahead, have at it, you know. And I think Peter Gabriel is no different in that respect. And, and, and the other side of that coin that has, has struck me certainly throughout the, the Peter Gabriel catalog, you know, is when Peter does want to make an explicit point and he does want to bring something uh, across, he, he, and and when I say explicit point, I mean something that is extremely important to him on a you know global scale, if you will. He's able to do that in a very generally constructive and positive way. He's he's not one to just say God, this sucks, you know. And and we made um, 
well, we, we made the the contrast to Roger Waters, who just seems angry about everything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, Roger Waters is however old he is, and he's just still really pissed off. And well, and I and can Peter... come to I can come to I can come to Roger Waters' defense a little bit here because oh, good. by a staggering coincidence, he used to drink in the same pub as I did and my Really? Back. It was his local. It was called the Plow. It was in Southwest London. I was just up the road from me. That was where I drank. He drank, and I remember he was a lovely bloke. And they they had a raffle. They had a raffle one night, uh, and he uh, they didn't uh, make the um, uh, the the sort of quota to sort of like it was a charity, you know, but but yeah. I think uh, um, like for sort of uh, disadvantaged kids and stuff. So he nipped back across the road to the other side where his house is grabbed a guitar just out of his studio brought it back and put it into the raffle so that, that they is could awesome make see oh and and that's that is such a fantastic story and i'm so glad that you you know we we sort of randomly stumbled upon that because you know and, and there was and as you were telling that story i was trying to think there was you know, when we were going through our Pink Floyd segment, I I had a lot of personal problems with you know a lot of the things Roger publicly presented, but there was one interview or something that I did see that made me you know it sort of gave me a glimpse of what you just described, and it's it's almost more maddening when you see you know the way he normally comes across versus that because that's there, and I guess for whatever reason he keeps that more to himself but okay but but you know um but Peter i can Gabriel, give you i can give you one other uh, uh, roger waters anecdote if you please like. do please do <laughs> he, he needs the uh the, the airtime here the landlord of the plow is was a guy called brian I, th I hope he's still doing it i don't know where if he is but um uh he um and and roger were like good mates like you know Brian would know what he wanted and Roger would walk in and Brian uh -huh. would pull him a pint. There you go, Roger. And Roger would just sit down. And one of the great things about this pub is no one would bother Roger. You know, like he was just another right. bloke in the pub. Okay. Sort of like, it's all right. Ro all right, Roger, how you doing? All right, side. That kind of sort of like thing. But what he did do is he recreated on the, um, um, what was it called? Um, the radio waves, uh, mm -hmm. tour. He recreated the the set of the uh, the he recreated the the plow in which Did he drank really really on the stage, so uh, right in the middle, so people could go get a drink. Some of the musicians can he could like, <laughs> and Brian he brought Brian on stage. The landlord Did he really yeah. This was for the for the Wembley Arena tour. Oh uh, when when he got to Wembley Arena, like so, so there was Brian on stage <laughs> oh, <laughs> pulling nice. pints for the band and stuff. That's awesome. When I had I had tickets to see roger just before COVID hit so oh I think it, really I think, it, I think it was in october of last year or something like that so of course you know that show didn't happen but i'm happy to say last time i checked my ticket master and i haven't checked it recently but the last time i checked it that's that that show was still listed as postponed and not canceled so i'm, I'm still hoping that you know once everyone gets vaccinated and the world opens up a little bit that he does come back because you know it, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at at my uh, my palaver wall and it all started when i went to see the us and them tour which was just i mean in terms of stage production he's phenomenal so yeah um, yeah you know it's very true and i think that you're right um with with 
with both uh, Gabriel and Waters, they they have a very specific platform. I mean, I mean, human rights is a very big thing for for both of them, uh, and Gabriel especially. And you can hear it on tracks like Wallflower. Yeah. And um, what was the uh, the track off Peter Gabriel three? I can't. Remember. I've suddenly gone blank now. Um, I don't remember. Uh, I no. don't remember. Yeah. And obviously, Ambico as well. Of course, that's probably the big the big one as well. Um, and I, I think that that's, um, something very close to his heart. And I think it speaks to that, his relationship a bit about the power and the powerless, uh, yeah. and about how easy it is for people in power to just trample over people who don't have, uh, that kind of power, um, and make them less than human in doing so. Like you don't matter. Mm, mm, mm. And I think he does that, you know, very effectively, in my opinion. So I, I, I very much appreciate that. And, and it's been nice, you know, to to go back and, and revisit these as a cognizant adult and realize, like you said, some of these songs are really way more meaningful than you ever would have thought. You're like, oh, OK, good. I'm glad I know that now. It is. A, he's a, a a very. I mean, I joined Am- Amnesty International as a result of of, of listening to his um, his music, and uh, so you know, I'm not saying that that you know that that changed the world, but it's like that whole thing of sort of like, well, if you can just get a small percentage of people to care, yeah, then you'll start making some changes in the world. I guess when so blew up and he had a larger platform, he he leveraged that, and yeah, so yeah. we saw that. You know, as as we were growing up, you know, it was fashionable in the 80s to take up these causes. And and I'm just just hoping that the younger generation, I mean, I don't know. (laughs) Well, I think you've seen that certainly um, in the States um, and further with the Black Lives Matter movement. And uh, and I would certainly like to think that, uh, I mean, it. You know, the disadvantage will always be at the mercy of those who are in control of the information and the, uh, you know, and the, the power in this world. It's, it is very, very hard. And the big problem here is, is that it's become a cliche for the pop star to say, the world is terrible. <laughs> you should be doing better things about it. You know, it was fine in some ways to do it back in the 80s, but my God, it could be a cliche now if not done correctly. Well, hopefully Peter is a role model. I mean, it's certainly more flies with honey than than Roger Waters. <laughs> Yeah, I always remember talking uh, that. Uh, it's a great story about, uh, you might have heard this about Bono, who was uh, doing uh, this this thing where he was clicking his fingers like this. Oh, that Every time I click my finger, a child dies. And, you know, that's quite, that's quite a, that's quite a powerful thing until he got to Ireland. He did it in Ireland. And he did it. He said, every time I click my finger, a child dies. And this Irish guy from the back of the crowd was, well, stop bloody doing it. Then. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> that, the metaphor only works the first couple of times, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, I, I, you know, I think that um, uh, when, when it comes to Peter Gabriel, I think I'd like to think that there was more coming up that was just as inventive but I, I i genuinely think everybody has a moment in the sun and after that everything else is just a long diminishing tail mm. and as much as i love peter gabriel and i love peter gabriel i genuinely do think his most creative years are behind him now 
Um, I but I do think that he's now flipped over to being a curator of his music now rather mm. than a creator, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And, and that that's sort of an excellent segue because one of the things, and in in real time, we haven't actually gotten to this particular album yet because it's at the the tail end of the catalog but for the purposes of of this conversation which will come out after we actually record that i'm very curious simon your thoughts on the the new blood project and you know because in my opinion peter has never been shy about reinterpreting his music and i thought that was a pretty bold way to do that I agree with you. I actually have the uh, the box set because I was uh, and you know with the uh, uh, scratch your back uh, series as well, where he mm-hmm. covered other artists and they covered some of his songs as well. I I think it just goes to show that he still has a restless mind and still has a need to sort of look and 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 uh, you know engage with the world through his material. And I think it now finds itself in the form of reinterpreting if you will um and and maybe it'll be a case of post-release because i know that by the time it got to um uh up i think we you know he had about 130 tracks or so sort of sitting in the vaults which he you know that, that he used to choose to make those tracks that made up up so maybe we'll see some of that stuff at, at some yeah. later stage um i only have um uh, I have one story that I can tell you about the new blood um, thing, and it comes from um, my fellow Genesis podcaster, Mike Lord. Mm. And he went over to see Peter Gabriel in the UK on that new blood tour okay. um, at the Hammersmith Apollo, the old Hammersmith Odeon as was. And he said that uh, what happened was that um, when uh, you don't see it on the DVD, but he went out and he cocked it up. He cocked up the first song, got Did it wrong. Really? Yeah. So he said, "Look, can we just reset that? We'll just do it again." Oh, boy. Just, uh, and then I think, sort of like as they were resetting, he sort of, he sort of like in joking, he sort of like said, "Harold the." Ba- uh, sorry, they said, uh, uh, "Any requests?" And someone yelled out, "Harold the Barrel," and, uh, <laughs> and and he sort of like said, "Yeah, we haven't rehearsed that one <laughs> round or something like that." Oh. That is genius. I remember seeing, and this this was before we even started the podcast. I was I was doing domestic chores around the house one weekend, and I had on HBO or something. I, I, the TV was on, and I was scrolling through, and I saw Peter Gabriel, you know, Live Blood or something. I don't, I, you know, I I don't don't remember what it was. Now I think it was Live Blood, but I, I tuned in. And, you know, the first two songs are Rhythm of the Heat and San Jacinto. And I'm like, you know, I I didn't know that Peter had done a, you know, a symphonic reinterpretation album. I didn't know anything about it. I just knew that I saw, you know, this live Peter Gabriel with this full orchestra where he performed two of the baddest ass songs right at the beginning of the show. And I was like... <laughs> this is <you> awesome. <laughs> Unfortunately, the rest of that uh, that that live recording doesn't excite me nearly as much, but that's okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's. Uh, I always remember. I think it was Tom Roche. It was like it was his saucy Jack moment, sort of like he doing reinterpreting all of his acoustic numbers with the Royal Philharmonic. You know, yeah, as that Spinal Tap moment. You know, the. Uh, but I, I think that he had. Um, 
uh, a genuine desire to uh, to see what what if there was any meat left to gnaw on with yeah. the songs. It's probably to his credit that he did not reunite with Genesis. I mean, he has such high standards now. I believe rather than butcher something, he'd rather do reinterpretation of it. Do you know that's a very interesting thought? I I I think you're absolutely right. I think there's um from what I understand from the interviews I've seen, he's very single-minded. Uh, and it has to, there has to be a very good reason to do something. And I know he's toyed with the idea for years about doing a version, a reinterpreted version of The Lamb Lies Down, because I think he felt that it, it, it never got it the right tone yeah. uh, back in the 70s. And I agree, you know, my personal opinion is that it was a, a show that was built before its time. I think it could have been an amazing show during the 80s and, and, you know, right up to now. I think they could have realized it an awful lot better with the technology that they, they have. But you're right, Ken. I think that um, he has a, a, um, a sort of a barometer, a weather sort of like vein mm. saying, which is the, this is this the right direction to go in? And I think you're right. I think it was, I think it was for the best that he never, found his way back uh to to genesis now i i'll be honest with you there is a part of me that i'm going to see genesis in the uk when they reschedule the, sure. the shows yeah. with with uh, with phil collins um i'm not really expecting much uh, about it but i'm i'm expecting there to be a lot of you know i just want there to be have have a little bit of fun on stage and i'm i'm not entirely sure peter gabriel wants that kind of vibe if he's going to wander wander on stage if you know what i mean yeah hmm. yeah that makes that makes perfect sense um any indication as to when they're going to reschedule those i mean well it's been put off once it was uh right. it was originally going to be um in september no december of last year it was it was going to be and then it got put off till april may of this year and now it's been put off again right the way through to the uh the fall of next year of this year whether or not that will happen i really don't know um to be I, really on yeah go on i i, I was just going to say i i just saw yesterday or today that that yes has pushed their relayer tour back into 2022 now as well yeah and it's it could very well be that that case of sort of like you know that that we might not ever see it but uh, yeah, if it goes to 2022, hey, I'll, I'll, you know, I, I plan to be around. <laughs> <laughs> All right, how about this one? Taking it at full circle to Simon Godfrey, the <laughs> artist and creator. Um, have you have you nicked from from Peter Gabriel? Is there anything Shameless. that you've that you've shamelessly shamelessly, <laughs> shamelessly. <laughs> one of the things which I always loved. Uh, about Peter Gabriel was the concept that he did. And I, again, I'm sorry, I'm going to go back to Peter Gabriel 3, which is the idea of using no symbols. Mm -hmm. I love that. The album was completely, yep. and that, that, I, that really stuck in my mind for years and years that, and it wasn't the fact that, okay, well, I'm not going to use any symbols, but it was the idea of, of using a limitation as a means of expression. Mm -hmm. Right, and that's something which I definitely have stolen from uh, from uh, Peter Gabriel in the times, and I've used that limitations in various different. I've used the the idea of limiting stuff 
uh, in various different ways. I've done albums in shorter periods of time, so I can't edit as much as I would usually like. I've done albums where I've said, okay, I'm not going to use the guitar at all. I'm not my main writing instrument, like the guitar. I'm not going to use a guitar. I'm going to use everything but a guitar to write an album and I'll see what that's like. Um, and you know, and I've done acoustic albums where I've said, okay, there's going to be no electric, uh, uh, stuff on this album. And, and, uh, oh, as a result, Landa, yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, Shineback was the, uh, was the one which I decided I was going to use no guitars at all. Mm. And uh, I would use everything else except guitar. And, uh, I get guitarists on. They can play, but I wasn't allowing myself to write with one, if you know what I mean. Well, yeah. we'll have to cover that in detail. I mean, we're, we're building up to uh, maybe another episode here. And, and, and it sounds like with Tribe of Names, you, you, you're, you're building up the repertoire there. So, Yeah. Now, there, this is another one, which uh, a Tribe of Names is a very interesting thing because I have, and you'll find a lot of artists are like this, which is I tend to be the benign dictator in the band. Huh. And it's 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 not necessarily my way or the highway, but I have a vision for a, a song, and I, I I bet you any money you'll find that Peter Gabriel has this, and Phil Collins when he's doing his sort of stuff, and and Roger Waters when he's doing stuff, you know, they're the captain of the, mm. the ship, they're the captain and the engine room, they're providing the motion and the direction at the same time, and everybody else is just helping, if you know what I mean. But with Tribe of Names, what I'm trying to do is, unfortunately not for the album we're about to release, because we were, we were ready to release another Valdez album and then we lost our keyboard player. <laughs> and that, and so we had to spend another year basically in isolation retooling the album for another guitarist, because we had now have another guitarist, a new guitarist guy called Carl Eisenhart. But my plan is in the future for this to be a much more collaborative thing and for me to gently take that white knuckle grip on the steering wheel and relax it and allow some other people inside the band to do it. And I think it comes down to the fact that I trust people a lot more now. In my late earlier years, I didn't trust many people. <laughs> um, and I, and it was because, you know, that old thing, which is never rely on the industry of others, because right. sooner or later, they'll always dictate your timeline. And I've never ascribe to that you know whatever is going to happen it's going to happen because i want it to happen but this band i trust these guys i they are great musicians and that's going to be my my limitation my limitation is the lack of control will be this time around <laughs> well if you if you ever get scott your drummer to replace the hi-hat with a pillow that, 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 that. <laughs> <laughs> he hates cowbells <laughs> not a big fan of cowbells i can tell you that right now so i can never oh. ever use a cowbell <laughs> so but he has can't... no aversion to symbols <laughs> yes exactly yeah but he, so we're not going to be doing any version of don't fear the reaper anytime soon well, that's good that's that's <laughs> wonderful <laughs> well no the progress would have your head so <laughs> i mean i mean well I, is, is, blue oyster cult is probably entry-level prog is that fair to say is that yeah is that... yeah i think okay. that's uh, that's trainer wheels prog you know? <laughs> it's gateway prog <laughs> but yeah it's a gateway but i'll be honest with you they are fantastic you know it, yeah. it, it's i genuinely think sort of like the fire of unknown origin one of those and uh and mirrors those are two albums that not a lot of people talk about but they are great albums okay well we're debating 
the American side of Prague. We have been so dedicated to Marillion, Genesis, yes, and even the Canadians with Rush. And we are just putting our toes in the water, debating how to conquer the American Prague. So... Well, I can tell you right now that my my absolute favourite uh, American prog band at the moment is the Tea Club. I think they are an astonishing band. They released an album a couple of years ago called If When, and that's uh, I'm not kidding you. That I was into that album in the same way that I was into Foxtrot when I was a kid. I am such a fanboy of that band. They are amazing. An incredibly talented band. Awesome. Ken, we got something else on our list. I love it. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. Wonderful. You had mentioned uh, I, I'm going to I'm going to fanboy out for a, a, a few minutes, if you don't mind, because, uh, you know, um, in preparation for this, I've spent some time on the Tribe of Names YouTube channel. Oh, yes. Watching, you know, several of your uh, of your uh, of your offerings. And so so two things that I just I just want to point out that I just really liked and, and it's they're not very deep observations. One, I enjoy the fact that you include your dog in a lot of your intros. Very yes, nice. Dora, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Dora. Dora looks like a real sweetheart. She is. Sadly, she died actually about. Oh God, about, no. Yeah, I know. She died about uh, about six weeks, two months ago. She had a. Oh, I'm um, so sorry. Oh, that's don't terrible. worry about. I mean, you know, we all die for God's well, sake. You know, that's what I hear. She, she was. Um, she she had uh, um, diabetes. Uh, okay. For, uh, yeah. What you know? Uh, she was a working dog. She was a track dog greyhound. Okay. And, you know, they they pumped them full of all kinds of things like you right. Know, and they they come off the, uh, the the track working but broken i suppose right, is the best yeah. way to describe it and uh, we just happened to have one that developed diabetes later on and mm. uh, yeah, it was fine and she was a strange dog she was like we always called her a sort of she was a cat in a dog costume now <laughs> um, i had one of those <laughs> she would sit around she wouldn't say boot to a goose but um she was she was absolutely lovely and uh yeah i mean she became sort of like a regular part of my sort of my musical life really sort of like having yeah. dora sort of sitting around and staring at me with these sort of like semi-interested eyes well, I, I I just I thought that was great. I'm a I'm a big dog guy, so um, you know, being it's part of the the whole COVID experience and working in my house for the last year is I get to spend all this extra time with my dogs. And oh yeah, you know. yeah. I mean, they are. I mean, I have to say, I I'm not entirely sure I we could have made it through the lockdown or the vast majority of lockdown without Dora because she was like she was our reason to go out. Yeah. Right. I was talking actually with friends of mine in well, colleagues of mine in Germany and like their situation is so dire, you know, yeah. literally after 6 p.m. I think the only reason you can leave your house is if you're walking a dog or going to get medicine. That's it. Wow. Like if you're outside your house without a dog or a prescription in your hand, you're going to get, you know, in trouble. So um, so. So rest in peace, Dora. Very sorry for your loss. The other thing um, 
we were talking, I think, off air about uh, gear purchases and everything else. So one of the things that I've developed a sick obsession with Telecasters. And so oh, yeah. I, I just I couldn't help but notice that you have what appears to be a very lovely Telecaster. Yeah, I, I am a Telecaster guy. I I, I found my um, my way. I learned basically to to be a front man by doing the open mic nights of um, mm. London. And the Telecaster is as close to an acoustic guitar as right. you can possibly get with an electric. Uh, and, and that's borne out by, you know, you only have to listen to Jeff Buckley's, um, CD of live at Chennai uh, to sort of, to see sort of like what would that, that sort of like being used. And so, yeah, Telecasters, they're unfussy instruments. I personally think they're the songwriter's guitar. Um, uh, it depends, obviously, how esoteric you want to get. But um, for me, I, I love what Telecasters do. They go, here's six strings. Here's a couple of pickups. I will stay in tune for the vast majority of your set. <laughs> <laughs> That's the deal I will give you as a Telecaster. <laughs> Better than the Strat, yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, Strats are lovely as well. I actually have... Um, a, um, the oldest guitar, uh, or one of the oldest electrics I've got. This, this is my Chinese made Fender uh, Squire, which I bought for £99 in 1995. And oh this my. has been all over the world with me. And oh. it's a £99 Stratocaster, Squire Stratocaster. And it still works. Admittedly, it's now got a new neck. Okay. Because the neck died last year, so I had to buy a book. Oh, no, did it? Yeah. it just You just couldn't adjust the truss rod. Oh. But apart from that, this is the guitar. This is the, you know, it's the same kind of guitar. And um, and as a result, it, it became, I didn't, I couldn't afford another, uh, another um, guitar when we were doing the Tiny Fish touring. So this became my A guitar, my my de facto guitar. Right, right. For uh for being for playing on stage. And as a result, because it was ninety-nine pounds, I would throw it up at the air in the air at the end of gigs. Um <laughs> And just let it land on the stage. And oh, really? Yeah, much to the, because uh, you can see exactly the damage that's sort of like been, uh, um, oh, wow. accrued on the, on the, on the guitar over the years. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's a fairly beaten up instrument. And I remember, um, we had, there's a great guy called Andy Rotherham, who is a guitar builder and was also guitar tech for, uh, Marillion as well. One of the guitar techs for Marillion. Mm. And he toured wow. with us, and uh, the poor bastard was rebuilding my guitar pretty oh, much no. after every show. Oh, I'd always no. we'd, we'd we'd roll up to the venue, and there he would be in a corner with that guitar, going, "Oh God, I'm going to fix this." I'm going to. So, uh, so you know, but he was an amazing. Uh, he is an amazing luthier, and so yeah, I, 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 I have a lot of respect for um, Stratocasters as well, as long as they're hardtail Stratocasters. Mm. Um, so I immediately that one actually does have a whammy bar, but I immediately wedged a great oh sure yeah block of wood in the yes, back of yes, the whammy yes. bar <laughs> to turn it into a hardtail, basically. They, they, they sound good and they look good. 
But ultimately, when you invest in a Fender, you're gonna have some wiring done at some point. <laughs> yes, because they're noisy and they're icky. Yeah, yes, they are. Yeah. They are very noisy. I remember once um, playing a show. And between the numbers, you could hear through my amp uh, a cab company um, <laughs> talking about where they were picking some people up outside. And yeah, that was straight down to my strat, that was. Outstanding. Can't beat that. All right. So, you know, one of the one of the uh, one of the traditions that we have with these is, you know, we don't want them to go on too long because we want to have reasons to come back and and talk to you again. So, um, you know, and, and I think there's there's a wealth of, of things that we would like to you know understand in the future about your own work, maybe. And, um, you know, if there are other segments that we do on the podcast that uh, resonate with you, we would be more than happy to have you back in the meantime. Um, you know, where can where can our listeners find out more about Simon? If you want to hear some of my back catalogue, you can do so through uh, a, a record company back in the UK called Bad Elephant Music. Uh, the vast majority of my back catalogue is available through uh, uh, that label. They are a fantastic label that you can, you know, you can, certainly can purchase and they send their stuff all the way around the world as well. And they have a huge catalogue of astonishingly good artists on that for everybody from the fierce and the dead through to uh the gift and i'm trying to think of charlie corwood as well um and uh, uh basically oh and sanguine hum who one of my favorite bands mm. as well they're on the the label as well um so yeah you can you can do that um I, I have other projects but really if i'm being honest with you if you want to check out any of the stuff that i do check out badelephant.co.uk and you won't go far wrong. Awesome. Great. Okay. And, and there's a new radio show in your house on iTunes streaming these days. That's right. Yes. My wife, who was another um, uh, Genesis tabletop Genesis alumni, uh, has now a new um, twice monthly uh, radio show on progrock.com uh, called No Words Music, where she specializes in um, music which is all instrumental, no singing at all. I mean, I think there's a bit of oohs and ahs every now and again, but uh, <laughs> she lets that one fly. Uh, and funny enough, I learned this is one of the things I learned just be listening to her show. I did not realize that Stanley Clark is a Philly guy. Yes, indeed, indeed. And I didn't not. I did, the, the other thing I didn't realize is that he went to school just up the road from where I live. Mm -hmm. Oh, mm -hmm. that's amazing! <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, up on Ridge Avenue. So it was like, oh my god, I can't believe this. So I'm learning so much about the American music scene, especially the jazz music scene, through her, through her, uh, her podcast and her radio show. Outstanding. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You've you you moved yourself to a city that's that's steeped in in jazz, R and B, the sound of Philadelphia horns and hollow notes. Yeah. It's a it's a music town. <laughs> and from what I'm told, it was one of Genesis's favorite places to play when they were touring the US. I you know, I I can believe that. We you know, again, we we kind of got into the whole prog thing, you know, relatively late. Um, so I only saw them once in, in Philly and that was on the, we can't dance tour. Still um, a good gig. Yeah, it was, it was phenomenal. It was actually, it was a gift, a graduation gift from one of my, 
college advisors. It was phenomenal. I mean, it was. Was that at the Spectrum? No, it was outdoors. So it would have been probably at the vet, I think, at that point. Okay. Because I think I think JFK was closed down by by 92 got it okay so it, it probably would have been in the vet i remember it was it was a stadium tour um certainly but you know philadelphia has you know quite the the history of embracing you know progressive rock groups so i i totally believe that um you know dallas texas not so much <laughs> <laughs> Well, now that you know the area, the the Palaver was born out of a study hall in Doylestown, PA. We, we, You're we're kidding all, me, really? Uh, yep. Yeah, all four or five of us are alums of Central Bucks West. So that's wow. a, it's not particularly far away. It's, it's Bucks County. Okay, yeah. go Bucks County. That's <laughs> we right. Just, we, we recreated study hall in a podcast because we were that <laughs> bored. <laughs> 35 years after the fact but that's okay it's all good and 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 it works but um well excellent yeah so um we certainly encourage our listeners to go and and check you out and um so when do, do you have any sort of timing for the next or for the the tribe of names release is it the debut album is due out we think in around about september october okay. um, we have pretty much finished the album um and we're in the process of of mixing it and doing a last bit of last minute tracking but um yeah if all goes well expect it out in september of this year we will very much look forward to it and again we encourage our listeners to uh, to look forward to it as well simon i want to thank you very much for your time this has been an excellent and engaging conversation and very much look forward to seeing uh what you know what's going to come out from from you and your band and and hopefully having you back on on the show in the future thank you it was a pleasure to be here great wonderful wonderful Tribe of Names is essentially Valdez. We lost our keyboard player, at the, uh, as, a, as a lot of bands did at the start of the year. So um, <laughs> uh, they lost keyboard players or they just imploded. Without live gigs at the moment, I am a little bit like um, an untethered kite.